Thank you all for coming back uh, after, after lunch. It's good, to, it's good to see so many of you in here. I think the sessions that we've had so far have been looking at uh, trust from the point of view of uh, broadcasters, of, of media, so trust in media. What we're going to be looking at in this session is a little bit different. We're going to be looking at how media are responsible for the amount of trust that we have in various institutions. The piece of music I played at the beginning was Lady Gaga, and I chose that very, very um, purposefully because actually it, it contains one of the most profound lines in any song written by anybody ever. And in fact, I was so impressed with this song that I thought a better title for this session would be A Mirror Cracked. And that's based on, on this. Trust is like a mirror. You can fix it if it's broke, but you can still see the crack in that motherfucker's reflection. This is the LSC. I've been told that uh, I, I'm allowed to use uh, a bad language during the, during the session, but it's probably a first for this particular conference. That says it all. Once uh, somebody's reputation has been tarnished, it's very difficult to, to, to rebuild. And I was looking at, um, recently at uh, a survey, a regular survey produced by the European Union. It's called the Eurobarometer. And uh, they measure the, um, the levels of trust that uh, people in the different uh, uh, member countries have in the institutions. This is Italy, and uh, it, the picture is of a country that uh, has very little trust in the European uh, Union, but also, and uh, um, more significantly, in the national parliament and government. And, of course, there, there, there will be reasons for that in Italy. And anyhow, Italians are a cynical bunch, so we're not really impressed with that. But i tell you what is shocking. If you look at this slide about the UK, and remember, uh, the UK is the, is the home of flag-waving uh, patriots who uh, uh, feel very proud to, uh, to be British and to be living here. And it tells the same story. It's, uh, it's a country that is completely disillusioned with uh, its institutions. Going back uh, a couple of years to a Guardian ICM poll, uh, this was in four countries, and how far do you trust your politicians? Not at all, really. Uh, this, is the, this is the four countries, UK, Germany, France, and Poland, and more or less the same message from all of those countries. Do not trust politicians to act with honesty and integrity. That's really damning. And to help us uh, answer uh, the question as to to what extent the responsibility for this lack of trust in, uh, in institutions is the fault of media, I have the mother of all sessions. I've got Nick Gowing from the BBC, Asun Gomez Bueno from RTVE, Julia Chatterley from CNNBC, Barbara Serra from Al Jazeera English, and John T. Bloom from the, the BBC. And I'll start with, um, with Barbara. And um, Barbara, I wanted to ask you about the situation in Italy. We've just had a general ele election, but it's on the back of uh, a few years of, of negative uh, reports about politicians and uh, institutions. 
What's the situation at the moment? Uh, oh, very precarious. Nothing's been decided yet. And, of course, Italy's facing a lot of uh, economic problems, which in turn could impact the whole of the European, uh, of the Eurozone. I think the Italian example is a bit of an anomaly also because it's not just a few years of confusion and economic crisis. It comes off the back of decades of Berlusconi sort of embodying this enormous conflict of interest where a prime minister or even the times he wasn't prime minister, still a leading politician, effectively owned the equivalent of ITV, Channel 4, and Channel 5, and indirectly controlled, when he was prime minister, the state broadcaster, Rai, and their news outlets. And I think what that's done is that it's uh, changed the way that journalists do their jobs, and journalists in Italy pretty much take sides. Uh, they're either left-wing or right-wing, pro-Berlusconi, anti, as do the actual network. So if you're watching Rai 3, you know that that is an anti-Berlusconi stroke, you know, socialist uh, channel. You know, all the Berlusconi channels are right-wing, and uh, some of the Rai ones are also quite right-wing or certainly pro-government. And that is, has eroded not only trust in politicians, but trust in journalists and the journalists' ability to hold politicians into account. And uh, what's interesting, of course, I'm assuming you will all know the Beppe Grillo effect, just when you thought Berlusconi was as bad as it could get, then a comedian, a proper comedian, um, effectively becomes uh, the kingmaker uh, in Italy. And what he's done is that he's rejected not just politicians, but the journalists as well. So he now leads one of the three biggest groups in the Italian parliament, and he has always refused to speak to Italian broadcasters. So he'll give interviews to the BBC, to Al Jazeera, to CNN, but he will not speak to the Italian broadcasters themselves or the journalists because he sees them as part of the problem. And I find that very interesting. It's not just lack of trust in politicians, but actually a lack of trust uh, in journalists uh, themselves. The way that he's trying to overcome, you know, you have to be held accountable somehow or get your message across, and he's done that through the web. And I think that works up to a point, but ultimately you still need a journalist to give any politician a hard time, and that's not going to happen on the web or it's not going to happen at one of his rallies where everyone there is one of his supporters. But uh, I think Italy, which is a bit of a strange uh, situation, but a key country in the Eurozone, so a country that, you know, the situation now is important beyond just its borders, uh, yeah, the trust is as little in the journalists as there is in politicians. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how politicians are portrayed on, on Italian TV? The amazing thing is that they're portrayed all the time. There are literally political programs. So imagine a sort of question time without the audience and pretty much just politicians. And that starts from, I think, 7 o'clock in the morning on two of the main terrestrial channels. There's sort of talk shows where the politicians just debate whatever that the issue of the day would be or just their usual uh, wranglings. And then that kind of goes on throughout the day. And in the evening, every night of the week, there will be one main, and we're talking like two and a half hours or sometimes three hour programs where it's just politicians. And I think this really shows you the link between the politicians and the networks because what this gives them most of all is exposure. Uh, and it was interesting when Berlusconi, after the Bunga Bunga scandal, people would have sort of written him off when he decided that his party where he was going to run again, the first thing he did was that he appeared on all the TV shows. And all of a sudden he was, for all his flaws, he is a good communicator. Uh, he was on TV the whole time. And so I think the thing with TV is that A, they're there the whole, the whole time, and also it's very difficult to challenge a politician. So Berlusconi, a few years ago, he was... he 
gave an interview to what he would see as a hostile journalist, but not a journalist that would ask any question harsher than anything you'd hear on the Today program on Newsnight, and he just walked away because he didn't like the questions. And in the Italian's mind, that is acceptable, whereas I think it you know, wouldn't be acceptable here or most European countries. So uh, politicians are on TV in Italy nonstop, but it doesn't seem to be doing any good for the democracy there. Thank you. And now I have an apology. To my eternal shame, I've introduced uh, Kelly Evans as Julia Chatterley. <laughs> and this is um, a full uh, one minute after shaking hands with the lady. So sorry about that, but it is in fact Kelly Evans sitting here. And it's CNNBC. Nick, uh, the situation in the UK. I recently saw an interview on the BBC where uh, a journalist called Eddie Mayer interviewed Boris Johnson, the, the, the Mayor of London. Did, presumably you've seen that sure. uh, interview. And I put it to you that uh, that was a nasty piece of work as uh, a political interview. Why nasty? Um, in the end, it was what we should be doing. Uh, I've just come off air. I was on air for four hours this morning uh, broadcasting uh, around the world. And our job is to make sure that these difficult questions are asked. Uh, I don't feel one should apologize for that at all. In the end, it put it into the public space. It led to, um, first of all, it was good, good publicity for Michael Cockrell's film. Uh, it got a lot of uh, copy on the Monday morning, but it also uh, illustrated the kind of Boris Johnson I remember from when he was a, the Daily Telegraph's correspondent in Brussels, and I worked opposite him when I was at Channel 4 News. So it, it didn't reveal anything particularly um, surprising to me, but I think that's exactly what we should be doing, providing we have done the research in advance and we feel quite comfortable that we can take the return fire from whoever we're interviewing. But don't you think it's overstepping the line if you tell somebody that they're a nasty piece of work? Isn't that going too far? Well, look, uh, nice try, but I'm not Eddie Mayer, and I, I can't defend, I can't explain. I don't know what went, went on in, in advance. Uh, I wasn't there on the Mar show. I'm not part of the production team. I'm another part of BBC News. So uh, I can have a view, but I, I think you need to ask Eddie Mayer and, uh, uh, and Barney. The, the producer. We, we heard from, from uh, Jonathan Baker earlier that uh, BBC guidelines is shades of grey. didn't say how many shades of grey there are there, but th does it say anything about how you should address politicians or members of parliament? Perhaps I should have read them before I came and sat on this platform to find out what they do say, because m my memory is that um, there's, a, there's a clarity of what you should do, but uh, shades of grey, it's our job to make sure we get the information out of them and people will have gone away with an impression and obviously the Darius Guppy stuff is still running on afterwards. There are still questions in last Sunday's papers about what happened in that exchange of remarks between um, Boris and uh, Darius Guppy which Eddie Mayer decided to raise. Now, I'd, I'd like the audience to come in whenever you feel that you have questions so please raise your hand if you have a question and we'll get a microphone to you at, at any point. Mike, can I make, an, uh, yeah. may I make a point? Because obviously you're asking me about a program which I had nothing to do with. Yes. So um, I hope I've put up a reasonable explanation rather than defense. Can I just make a, a broader point, please? please? Um, I mean, one of the reasons I think I've been invited is because I've actually done some of my own work at the Reuters um, uh, College of Journalism in, in Oxford and going back to Harvard about the credibility of, of, of politicians and certainly corporate executives in this new, uh, what I call the public information space. I think we should, be, uh, we should be very clear that this is the richest time that there is for journalism. And if trust has fallen in politicians 
um, and the political class and corporate chief executives, as we've been seeing with Barclays and HBOS, with the devastating, excoriating report yesterday about the three HBOS executives that they should no longer work in the financial services. And Nick Davis was here shortly before, and I didn't hear him speak. This is what our business is about. And my very strong view, and I'm just going to summarize uh, the kind of work that I've been doing, is that because of what is essentially now we call social media, there's a new vulnerability of power. And what I find in all the work that I've done, including the interviews, mostly off the record and on background, after people have been fired or lost their jobs or lost their positions uh, as, uh, as senior political figures, is it's very clear their lack of awareness of just how profound the new empowerment is in the new environment, which gives us six billion mobile phones. They are way behind the curve, and they still believe in their institutional power. And it's not just about Europe, this. This is everywhere in the world, whether you're in South Africa and you're Jacob Zuma with the problems of the ANC, whether you're in the largest democracy in the world of India, look at what's happened on corruption there with the Anna Hazara case, where literally 10 million people were mobilized in 90 hours, and it caused the politicians to literally go back on their haunches and try to work out what on earth was going on. We've seen it as well with the Vodafone case. We're seeing it uh, in China. I'm off to China tonight with the power of Weibo with 500 million. I say that. Most of you know all this, but what you're essentially seeing is a new vulnerability of those in power because of the public information space, which, which, is which is because they do not change their mindsets. Many of them are, remain in denial. Whether you're in Delhi, uh, whether you're in Sao Paulo, whether you're in uh, Pretoria, or downtown London during what happened with, those, uh, with, with, with the August riots two years ago, when social media in Clapham and Tottenham and Haringey was providing much more of what was going on than anyone, well, David Cameron was out of the country, than even Gold Command at Scotland Yard realised. And what happened during the missiles being deployed in East London, the way the Ministry of Defence was way behind. It didn't understand the power of mobile phones to show the missiles lying at the bottom of one of the towers while the, the soldiers went off and had a fag and a coffee. Not the best thing to do. So what you're seeing is, a, is a, an extraordinary change in the landscape which most in positions of power and responsibility have not gripped, whether they are the, the head of a C-suite in a big company or whether they are ministers around the world. And that's why I, I in summary, say that there is this new vulnerability of power, politics, and systems. It's great for journalism, and if there's a, great journalism, but if there's a, a, a failure of trust in these institutions, in my view, very strongly, it's because they've got away with it for too long. And whether it's us in the kind of traditional journalism platforms or others out there, people everywhere producing this, this, this amazing amount of this landscape of information, this is holding people to account. And ultimately, as my work says, and, uh, and has been done here at the LSE as well, this is creating perceptions of a deficit of legitimacy. These are tough things to say, but certainly that was my conclusion four years ago, warning of what would happen and I think that's where we are now. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you used the word legitimacy because it, uh, it really leads to my next point. There, there's, there's a debate at the moment about the future of the BBC. The BBC has a new director general. Um, there's uh, Gavin Davis recently gave uh, a speech about uh, uh, what public service media should look like in 2020 in, in the UK. And there is this idea that um, public service media is somehow different. 
has responsibilities that uh, commercial media do not have. Public service media have a sort of glue of society role. Do you think that uh, it's fair that uh, um, if you have responsibilities towards society, towards um, reinforcing the fabric of, of society, that you're attacking its representatives in Parliament and in other institutions? That's our job. We're at the BBC. Look, you should have Tony Hall here. He's in his fourth day, I think, at the BBC. Um, but you should have others from the executive board or maybe Lord Patton. Uh, I'm, I'm an employee of the BBC, a staff employee of the BBC, but our job is to make sure, whether it's the British government or the Spanish government or the Moroccan government, or, and I'm choosing at random here, our job is to ask the questions on behalf of the people who are watching us, who either pay the licence fee in Britain or who, who are the say 80 million around the world who are watching our, our channel every day and it runs into many hundreds of millions uh, from our, on our multiple platforms. That is our job as journalists, providing we do it within the guidelines laid down within compliance within the BBC. I want you to ask uh, John T. John T. Bloom, um, to what extent uh, this lack of faith in politicians can be linked to the economic crisis in Europe? Uh, well, to a reasonably large extent, but you have to ask yourself when... Um, there was great faith in politicians. Um, it is easy to think that there was some golden age where everyone doffed their cap and, um, and thought that they were all wonderful people doing the best in, in the best of possible worlds. Um, and actually, I think if you look back at the, the history, that was never the case. Cynicism about politicians in Parliament and why they do these things and whether they're doing them correctly has, has been a very long-running story, not just in the UK, uh, but elsewhere. I think there is, there has, however, been a change in the last... 10 years, probably, which we didn't catch in the run-up to the credit crunch, uh, which was that there have always been successful people who've made a great deal of money, um, and politicians included, um, once they've finished office normally in this country. But the gap between what they were earning and the power they had and the, that of ordinary people just accelerated away. The gap widened massively to the extent where people who were supposed to be running companies on behalf of their shareholders, um, were being paid as if they were entrepreneurs ris risking their own money and made massive rewards for running sometimes utilities, former private, things like water companies and, um, and gas companies, not high-tech, not uh, cutting-edge. They'd been there a long time. The infrastructure was already in place. All they did was milk more money out of them, and they got re massive, massively rewarded. And I think that has had a factor, uh, an influence on this, that um, people, th for a long time, there was a kind of post-war settlement that you could make money, you could be successful, we will help you, um, but there would be a payback and you would not um, reach escape velocity. And there, there is an increasing number of people not very far from here who are now so uh, well paid and remunerated and so on that if they don't like it, they just leave the country and they take it with them. And that, that has always happened, but nothing to the extent that it's happening at the moment. Um, and I think ordinary people are very, very angry, angry when they're, they're billions of their money is being used to bail out banks, um, and they can't distinguish between um, the bankers they've bailed out and these other people who are extremely well rewarded as well. Um, and if they don't like a policy, they just abandon the country and go and make their money somewhere else. I think that is part of the factor, the lack of trust uh, in these people who um, just seem to be living in a different universe. 
how do you go about explaining uh, difficult uh, macroeconomic concepts to, to your listeners? Um, you, you, you're working for... If, so I, I don't live in the UK, so I, 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 so I don't listen to a lot of uh, UK radio. You, you work for Radio 4? Uh, yes, I work principally for Radio 4, but I, um, I do other stuff as well. R- radio 4 is a very particular audience, isn't it? Uh, yes, I mean, it tends to be um, older and better qualified and more experienced and so on. But even so, um, you really have to start from scratch with every story. Um, it is rather um, disturbing that even in the BBC, where, which is full of very well-educated people who are interested in current affairs, uh, there was until recently, um, and we've worked very hard against this, an attitude that business and economics was in its own little ghetto. Uh, I remember doing the Today programme business slot many years ago when they'd say, um, and now here's John T. Bloom with the business news, and you could hear the newspapers rustling as the presenters just read the rest of the papers for three minutes while I was on air. And then, as I came to an end, you could hear them putting the papers away and go, oh, thank you very much, John, that was very interesting. They haven't, yeah. It was, they just didn't give a damn. Um, and they didn't do that for the sports because they were all blokes and they were interested in sport. Business and economics was boring, dull, it was only there because it happened every day and you could fill a certain amount of air time by reading the numbers out. Uh, and that has changed. We have we worked very hard at that. But it is still a factor that it is acceptable in meetings to say, I'm sorry, I just don't understand maths or I don't understand profits or I don't understand what growth is. In the same way that if you said, um, I don't understand how a by-election works, you'd be kicked out of a building. Fair, fair point. I'd, I'd like to bring Asun... Oh, a question from the front. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, could you identify yourself? And uh, could, we have a, could we have a microphone? There will be people in the room who remember a time when the BBC would bring a government minister on and ask, what would you like to tell the nation? And they wouldn't be questioned much at all. And you've talked about bringing uh, organisations to account, but I'm worried we're not doing it enough. We've just had huge changes to the National Health Service, which many people haven't understood because it seems that the media have failed to explain it properly. There seems to be massive misinformation about European Union and what it's about and immigrants and, and everything else. So I'm concerned, actually, that we're going past the golden age of uh, journalism that we, we perhaps had 20, 30 years ago into a new age where w- some journalists don't seem to either have the power or maybe even the will to, to delve as deep as they should. Um, actually, uh, I'm doubtful. There, there was a time, and we've all seen the clip of, I think it was Anthony Eden returning to the UK, and, and the BBC did say, as an acknowledged expert on foreign policy, is there anything you'd like to tell as minister? And he said, no, not really. And that was it. That was the end of the interview. Um, and then, then we've got the Eddie Mayer interview of Boris Johnson. Well, I'd rather have Eddie Mayer being criticised for being a bit tougher with Boris Johnson than going back to the old system. Um, as to failure to explain, um, you know, we still do make mistakes in, in some areas, and life is getting increasingly complicated. But we do spend an awful lot of time worrying about exactly how we're going to get across very, very complicated issues in one, two minutes Uh, in radio when you can't exactly hold up a diagram. Um, It is not easy. Um, But one of the things, the World of One has introduced this thing called Just a Minute, named after the famous radio game, in which I have to do 
um, quantitative easing in one minute. Um, they've never actually mentioned how good they are. They always say, oh, well done, Johnny, that was 58 seconds. So I'm a bit sceptical about how good it is. Are but, you allowed to pause and repeat yourself? Um, no, not really. I can repeat myself, but I can't pause. I haven't got time. Um, but you know, you, the whole idea is you take a complicated issue and you try to explain it in a minute, just as an introduction to a longer series of interviews and stories around that issue. So we are trying to explain the big issues before we then get into the analysis and the political reaction. I, th I think Nick would like to make a point. Yeah, I don't have an audit and I don't have metrics on this, but I think you will find in answer to your, your question, and I don't deal with British politics, but it's now becoming much more difficult to interview politicians because they, I, I, you, we can go through a long list of people we've asked for interviews with and most of them say no. I'd like to bring Asun here, uh, in here and ask Asun about the Indignados movement in, uh, in Spain. Is that still alive? Yes, yes, it is alive, and uh, I think the Spanish... <laughs> <laughs> or is it? <laughs> <laughs> this movement is alive, and uh, the Spanish society really needs them, because I think, uh, according to, to the latest uh, survey, in, independent and serious survey, the politician's behavior is the third main concern of Spaniards. So uh, being unemployment is the first concern, the economic crisis is the second, and the political establishment is the main concern for 22% of the population. So I think that's why the Indignados and now the green tie, the white tie movements are so, so important for us because uh, there is a need to, to create a kind of a hope among the general public towards politicians because... I don't think we can take the risk to fall into the anarchy. So the, the Indignados movement, which uh, is pretty active, they have not achieved any important goal, any political goal, but they keep very active, and actually they've called for an action next week against uh, one of the main banks in Spain. They are asking all the people to take as much of money as possible out of this bank in order to denounce the corruption of the banks. And now they also have to work on the corruption of the political parties, the illegal funding of the popular party, the illegal system of uh, retirement in Andalusia under the Socialist Party, the illegal organization which was led by the son-in-law of King Juan Carlos, which has ended up with the accusation of the King Juan Carlos' daughter. So these indignados and all these uh, kind of uh, civic moment, movements in Spain have a lot to do and uh, what's important about them is that uh, although they were born through the social networks, they only got um, importance when the press and the television paid attention to them and they had a chance to, to be spread and to be present everywhere. But now they are only using the social networks to, to spread their, their message and it's working very well. How do you interview politicians on, on, on RTVE? Are you as, as, as direct uh, as, as, as Nick is on, on the BBC? Do you, do you um, push for answers to questions? Well, nowadays, now, now, which is right now, we are not having so many problems to interview popular party politicians at RTVE which was a problem we had uh, one year ago. They didn't want to come to TVE. Now there is no problem. The problem is that um, they don't hold many press conferences. 
For instance, uh, President Rajoy held a press conference yesterday, but it was the first one in more than three months. So he's not been exposed to the, to the public. He's only having interviews with uh, some kind of newspapers and not much more. Is there a difference, let me rephrase the question, in the way that RTVE would interview a politician as opposed to a commercial channel in Spain or a Spanish newspaper? Yeah, because it doesn't depend on, the, on which channel it is, but it depends on who owns the channel. So depending on which channel he's been interviewed, the, the interviews some, somehow or the other. I'd, I'd like to show... Um, a film in, um, in a couple of, uh, of, uh, of seconds. First of all, I just wanted to, uh, to ask, are there any Russians in the room? Th th there are a few. That, that, that's interesting. A any Cypriots? Interesting. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'd like to show um, a CNBC promo film. Cypriot banking sector is so large. The size of the Cypriot banking sector is so large that we found it justified to also involve the depositors. This is not a very agreeable outcome for sure. This would appear to put the Russian government on a collision course with Brussels. How long would the discussions last for, sir? For as long as it takes. Mikhailis Saris uh, is going to walk away from Moscow empty-handed. Will you do whatever it takes to keep Cyprus in the Eurozone? Yes. We managed to sign a bailout deal here in Brussels overnight. The Russians were understandably disappointed. This decision is painful. They have opened the doors of the bank just a few minutes ago. They're very frustrated. They're disenchanted. Troika is doing fine. Actually, there are two of us, you know. Look, you know, we're doing okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> there, there was a, when I watched that, there was, um, I, I'm not, uh, there was a line, don't mess with the Russian mafia. Don't you think you're sexing the story up a bit too much? All, all that dramatic Never. music? No. I mean, that was like a trailer for a Hollywood movie. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I think that, that tells you so much about the essence of how we cover a story like Cyprus, which is to say that was far more interesting than what's actually been happening on air if you were to watch cumulatively the last three, four weeks straight of coverage. And yet at the same time, what's the truth? Is it, is it the representation that you saw there, which gets to the sort of core of what a lot of Cypriots felt, a lot of Russians felt, and a lot of people across the European Union felt about suddenly this feeling that their deposits were more vulnerable than they, than they, had, than they had realized? Um, or is it the drier kind of day-to-day -day back and forth over what's happening with the 10-year Spanish or Italian bond yield and, you know, the kind of discussion we have on the program, which may be, you know, less sexy, I guess, so to say, but also... Um, 
doesn't mean that that's the truth and the whole truth either. And this is the trouble with television as well. I mean, we're covering a story that's fundamentally driven by the pictures. And, you know, the Cyprus case where the banks finally reopened after being closed for two weeks is a great example of this because you have one potential idea in mind as a news organization, which is to say, you know, we want to be on the ground. This is a massive historic event. How are people going to react? What's it going to look like? You know, we want to be there. We want to be in the middle of it. Um, and yet there were more... There were more people from the media than there were people from the public at, at some of these banks when they reopened. So I'm always kind of relieved when the story proves us wrong because so much of it, and I think people have kind of implicitly made this point, but so much of the way that people act today and what social media is all about is spectacle. A spectacle is sexy. It's something you can get together and create. It's a movement. But if it's, but they're often so ephemeral. So you can get 18 million people together to do one thing overnight and then eh, Everyone's back, you know, doing something else in the next second because it's kind of like the spectacle has passed. So, I mean, I think for us it's, it's very difficult, and, and, and we have to constantly balance this sense of, you know, overcovering or overhyping a story with, frankly, not covering it enough. Because you could argue in all of the weeks leading up to what happened in Cyprus, we should have been far more focused on the potential that people's deposits would, excuse me, would be at risk. So... That's, that's part of the trouble, I think, with stories, is that they're always after the fact. You know, you're always chasing. You're always there after it's happened. You're always realizing things too late and doing the best you can in a situation. And I think what that promo does, even though it's overhyped and everything, um, is at least give you a sense uh, of what the stakes are and of what the energy and, and sort of the, the human impact of the story was. It... it, it, it it's a distortion, but it still gets at the essence of this story, which is fundamentally about politicians saying different things, um, trying to avoid our questions, basically, and then ultimately making some decisions that are reverberating to this day and making people sort of question long-held preconceptions about their, their money and about the European Union. So, so, so the story, if, if, if I'm getting this right, the story in Cyprus is, is about politicians, it's about uh, Russian mafia, it's... Uh, to, to what extent is it really, though, a story about uh, ordinary people? I mean, there's a powerful story there anyway about people who uh, are, are losing uh, their life savings, about people who... Well, that's uh, my point, yeah, but that's, which would be to justify, to some extent, the coverage but, because of the impact it has had on people. But why, why, I mean, there's lots of red herrings there, though, isn't it? You, you, you're, you're, you can't see the wood for the trees. It's, it's, there's all this other stuff there, and it's, it's actually detracting from, from the main story. Perhaps. I guess you could argue that we put, could put more of the everyday person in that promo showing them saying, oh, I'm so upset about my money, etc. Um, but part of the story in Cyprus is actually there are a lot of people, and I'd love to hear from the Cypriot as well, um, but who, the, the, the people, for example, there are people in our, our own newsroom who have family who live in Cyprus, and when you ask them, are they hysterical, are they, they're sort of like, eh, you know. What are they going to do? And if you look at the reaction on the street when they reopened the Cypriot banks, as I said, there wasn't this massive kind of movement. And so I think the coverage, to some extent, has reflected the hit to ordinary people without necessarily taking one person as an example of look at the doom and gloom and the, and the misery that would have misrepresented actually a way of a lot of people have felt about it. There was a lady from yeah, yes, this was the, you're the lady from Cyprus. Yeah, could you take a, a mic? Just one second here. And I, I, I don't know what you're going to say, but I'd also like to ask you about uh, the way the coverage is, is, is covered in Cyprus and the way it's covered here in the UK. Um, okay. 
Hi, I'm Ira Lorandos. I'm from, I'm Greek and Cypriot, so I'm both sides of this disaster. Um, I think what, I think you underplayed how much that promo was actually, even though there wasn't representation of ordinary people, that's how a lot of ordinary people felt. It felt like a Hollywood movie. It felt like it was the end of the world. And I was sitting in Greece at the time with my family, and a lot of my family members were direct um, victims of this whole disaster. And they really, it was a lot of panic, huge amounts of people flying from Greece back to Cyprus um, to like save their money sort of thing. So it, it felt like a Hollywood movie. And definitely the way it was covered in Cyprus and in Greece was this very much like, it was very emotional because it was people's life savings. What, what, could I ask then, do you generally feel like it, watching that, do you feel like it's a fair representation of it, the crisis I mean, or how... It, it's a fair representation of people's feelings. I think maybe not so the facts, um, but I mean, emotions and facts, you know, these things kind of... It would be worth comparing it to the Northern Rock crisis here, which Jonty can talk about much more. I mean, we had long queues of people outside the Northern Rock when there was a, a possibility that it would collapse. When was it, Jonty? Four years ago? Yeah, I mean, but so we've been through it. I mean, I, I think I have a very clear view on this. In my, my view is very clear that what we were trying to do was hour by hour, minute by minute, report what the politicians were doing. We didn't raise the issue of Russia. The finance minister raised it by going to Moscow. It's an odd place to go. Most countries wouldn't go straight to Moscow when there's a financial crisis and they're trying to raise 10 billion euros. So that was confirmation of just how profound uh, and unique the access was to, to, to Russia. And we now know what the hit has been. But there was obviously a bit like what happened in Greece uh, two and a half years ago with George Papandreou trying to work out on the move. And that's where certainly my work comes in. It's this vulnerability of those in power who are trying to handle things they've never coped with. You talk, you talk frankly to officials, whether it be in finance ministries or other ministries in Berlin or Paris, or certainly here at the Treasury, and they are in uncharted territory. Jonty will know more about this than me. We're dealing with a political class which is now vulnerable because it's entered areas it's never confronted before. There are no models for it. So no one is going to be perfect. And in this 24-7 environment, they are therefore being watched all the time, and we need information. You needed information. Is it going to be 100,000 euros, the, the haircut? Is everyone going to get a haircut? When are the banks going to open? Is there going to be money in the ATM machines? All these are very legitimate questions for all of us to be asking. And what we saw was a system which, where we were asking the right questions, but they couldn't keep up with the speed at which the questions were being asked. Thank you. Uh, the, the, a lot of hands went up from Russia. I wonder if we could hear from one of the, the Russians. <laughs> Bulgaria's pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Russia, though. No, not Russia. While we look for one of the Russians. Right. So, Sylvia Batkov, Standard News, Bulgaria. And you mentioned vulnerable politicians. And the case in Bulgaria is that the media seems to be quite vulnerable with the politicians as well, because, uh, as you probably know, the government was swept away by a movement organized basically on Facebook. And... The way things go now in Bulgaria is that uh, if you work for a medium, most of the mediums are uh, short of money, so they first go to one party and then see who bets more. So basically the, the media is going down with the politicians as well. So, uh, and my feeling is that it's pretty much happening in all parts of Europe as well, so not only southern and eastern Europe. 
Would you agree to that? Not, not completely, because uh, in the Spanish case, the indignados movement has been very, very careful in not being related to any political party. The, the right party, they say that they are related to the left, but the left, the, the, they refuse to be related to the left. They try to, to maintain themselves independent, because they, what they want, to, their fight is finding new ways to lead. They want to, to find new ways to, to approach the day-to-day the -day problems the citizens have. So that's why they don't want to be part of any political party. So they don't approach any of them. Uh, absolutely. I was asking more about the media, since medias are in lack of money and they need to go to political parties to bargain which stories to cover, which stories to push under. And would you agree that the media is going down along with the politicians as well? Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So if I could just say, the, um, one of the few advantages of the um, uh, MPs' expenses scandal was that for a short time MPs became, became even less trusted than journalists. Because although, although we can talk about um, you know, holding these people to account, if you actually look at surveys of who people trust, journalists normally come actually below politicians um, in this country. Oh. <laughs> sure it's not in your case but, um, not yet <laughs> um, so uh, we shouldn't get high and mighty uh, the BBC has um, is it the most trusted source of news for 30% yeah. of the British public, that is not particularly high um, you know this is something we have to work at um, when we're not the most reputable people apparently what I find quite ironic is that actually in Italy the BBC is held, or British journalism in general is sort of held as the beacon of impartial journalism. So I think, you know, it sort of depends. I think it varies in, in different countries. But you make the point uh, about money. And I think the reality is, I mean, the other thing that I think we noted with the CNBC uh, promo is the difference between commercial TV and, you know, publicly funded the BBC. Al Jazeera is in a funny place where it's a little bit like publicly funded. Basically, we don't have commercial imperatives, but, you know, those do play a part, the money, especially if you start covering, you know, parts of the world that aren't very accessible, like Africa. I mean, those deployments cost hundreds of thousands sometimes, and uh, so the financial issue is, is very linked in the problem. Well, and just to give an example as well, you know, we have to make decisions every day as to literally where to send our truck across Europe because there's one of them, and so either it has to be in Greece or it has to be in Cyprus or it has to be in Spain or what, what have you. And so you know, there, are, there are decisions, these financial decisions are, are a very real part of the story. And so I think it's important to, to sort of know what kind of financial pressures there are because I think just kind of having saturation of media and different competitors and different outlets at least gives you a, a wider scope of the story than if you only have a few players and certainly players who don't have many resources at all. Nick, and then I've got a, a question for Barbara. Let me just pick up on, on, on the question of Bulgarian politicians. Let me give you three examples. None of them are to do with Europe, although Russia is Europe. Think of what happened in the, uh, the elections uh, when, when Putin was re-elected as president. What happened between September 18 months ago up to the elections and the power of the, the convening power on the streets, particularly Alexander Navalny and others, Russian politics changed dramatically, and, it hasn't, and it's not going into reverse, the, even though the Kremlin might want it that way. The Kremlin is now on its back foot. Uh, the, the Putin is now on the back foot as well. There has been a dramatic change. 
Secondly, I mentioned India. Look at what happened in the rape case just before Christmas and the way the mobilization took place there. This has got the biggest democracy um, in in the world on its back uh, haunches as well, whether in the states or in the federal government in, in Delhi. You've got politicians there who are now paranoid about their power, and it's going to probably bring down the Congress party uh, in the election within the next year. They have failed to understand the enormity of what is changing, whether it be corruption or whether it be the rape case as well. That is not going to go away. The, the way in which politicians have ignored the rape issue in India, shamefully, with the, 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 the numbers appalling of the number of women who've, who, who were raped and this terrible case. It got people onto the streets, people who were mobilized through the electronic and digital connectivity they have in their hands. That is undermining the political class. The third example is Singapore. Singapore is, how can I put it, um, there are probably Singaporeans in the room, and I know I'm on the record, but it's, it's, it, it is a small country with a certain tradition of attitudes towards free press where there are restrictions. There was an election there 18 months ago where the governing PAP party went through a normal election process and was completely floored by the fact that it had failed to understand the enormity of the connectivity and the empowerment that was going on in the new generation, the next younger generation. As a result, a lot of the ministers who assumed they would be back in power were not. One of them was George Yeo, the foreign minister, who's now no longer foreign minister. He's no longer a politician. And what has been fascinating, certainly in my work, is getting people like him to talk publicly. And I I was lucky enough, and I've heard him twice now, he talks about the way the new empowerment and digital space is exposing the hypocrisy of politicians. And he was one of them. Now, he he talks about it at length, and I'm not going to re-quote him because he goes on, on about this. But the frankness with which he says, we did not understand until we were hit between the eyes and people like me were voted out of power. What you're seeing is that happening in many, many countries, whether authoritarian, semi-authoritarian, or complete democracies. And that's why I choose those three examples. You'll have your view of Russia, your view of India, and your view of the Singaporean system as well. So these are profound changes where what might have happened in 10 years is happening in 10 months or 10 weeks. A quick question, and then I go to the audience. Uh, Barbara, with your Al Jazeera uh, hat on, uh, there, was a, there was a wave of popular protests uh, across North Africa referred to as the Arab Spring driven by, by, by social media. Do you think we're witnessing a European Spring? Not in the same way. I don't think you can compare the two, to be honest. Um, I think we're seeing another wave of, of discontent in Europe, but I just don't think you can equate that with you know what we saw happen in Egypt or Libya or you know Syria that still keeps on going, I wouldn't. The wave of discontent mm. in Europe, yes, uh, unhappiness with politicians and perhaps the EU and journalists, but I, I wouldn't put the same on the, the two on the same level. Question. I, I want to get back a bit to. Sorry, the, could you say who, who um, you are? Sally Broughton Mitsova from the LSE Media Policy Project, and. Um, uh, getting back to the title of this, Trust in Europe, and considering that a lot of you have been sp- reporting on the Eurozone crisis, we've had, you know, in the past um, various crises of the, Euro- of the EU um, in terms of constitutions and treaties, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, you are the mediators. You are the ones holding those politicians to account, and you are the ones presenting these stories to the public. So what is Europe for you? 
what is Europe when you are covering this? Can we start with John T? Uh, well, with my BBC hat on, I, um, we always get um, irate letters when we say Europe um, uh, as meaning the EU. And somebody always writes in and says, you know, Norway and Liechtenstein are in Europe and they're not in the EU or something like that. Um, so we, are, we tend to be very careful about the, the words we use. Um, but for me, in this sense, Europe, uh, when we're talking about the Eurozone, is, is mainly the continental EU members and how they're dealing with this crisis. There is, um, in Britain, uh, this tendency to think that we, we just sit aside and watch um, the rest of Europe making a complete hash of things. Um, and I'm always trying to kind of point out that that, that is not really the case. We are in, we're not in the Eurozone, but we're certainly in the EU. And if you look at the economic effects of the collapsing economies of the Eurozone, they're being disastrous for us too. Uh, and so you have to tend to fight against this attitude of, um, which you get in some of the other media in, in the UK, of, um, thank God we're out, it's nothing to do with us, aren't these terrible continentals making a complete hash of it? We told them it would be like this all along. Why didn't they listen to us? None of that helps when you're trying to cover this subject. Um, and it, it doesn't help, not least, because you have to spend about the first minute explaining why this does affect us um, uh, and why it affects us. And I would just say that Good, the... Good, so um, Kenny, when you're talking about Europe, um, is Britain part of Europe for American viewers? Kelly? Oh, me, sorry. Um, is Britain part of Europe for American yeah. viewers? No, 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 no. In fact, I... <laughs> I don't think, and I could be wrong, but I think most of us tend to think very geographically. So, like, Britain is, is the island, the group of, of countries, etc. Europe is the continent. So, that's, it's just that simple, almost. Um, I think... So, was, what are we, then? Yeah, they, maybe you can answer that question. I think that's a question... No, that you're defining us as not part of Europe. Yeah. Well, the... Um, the interesting thing about this crisis for me has been the extent to which definitions suddenly do matter. They're extremely important. So if you're in the Eurozone, that means you're part of the monetary union. That means that Mario Draghi sets your economic policy and that it may or may not be appropriate for you. And because of that, you may or may not have to leave you know, the currency and, and you know, go back to your own or, or what have you. So the Euro Eurozone is extremely important. And the European Union as well, to your point, which is if you're Britain and suddenly you know, you're grappling with these regulations that come from the EU or, or what have you, if you have to turn on and explain to shareholders or make strategic decisions because you happen to be located in London instead of New York, and because you're in London you fall under the EU regulations which are vastly different than American regulations, you know, again, these definitions become extremely important. And I think one thing that I've certainly kind of learned or I guess wondered about since being here, it's been about a year, um, interesting time to be here, and it, it's effectively whether there's still a European spirit, and I think it's interesting to constantly see the Latvias and uh, Bulgarias and Romanias of the world looking to join the European project, even at a time when existing members of the Eurozone are questioning whether they want to be part of it. So what I wonder about is what, when you talk about what is Europe sort of existentially, what is the European spirit or project? And I wonder or worry, I guess, that whatever that common view was, that, um, who is it, uh, Ortega Gasset, I think, ages ago, spoke about this sense of the European man and the European project as this kind of inevitability. And I wonder if that's still the case, or if, in fact, it's been sort of seriously damaged um, by the crisis. Yeah, I think part of the problem is 
of course, it's the economic crisis, but it's also the way the politicians have uh, been approaching this crisis, have been explaining or not explaining what, why the crisis is taking place, which measures they are adopting to, to face this crisis. And also part of the problem is how the journalists have been explaining it or have not been criticizing the way the government and the opposition have been approaching this crisis. So we, in Spain, it's a country where politicians are not trusted, but the, the credibility and the honesty of the journalism is also in doubt. So unless we, the journalists, do something, the, this uh, politician situation won't recover. And maybe we should ask ourselves if the politicians do not deserve our trust. Maybe we should try to find different ways. Um, uh just briefly, because this European story is very personal for me, just because I was, I'm Italian-born, I grew up in Denmark, I've lived in the UK for 20 years, and what I've really noticed, I sort of follow the press in Southern Europe as well, and what I've really noticed is almost a dividing line, and, and I do count the UK as, as part of Europe, by the way, almost a dividing line between the North and the South. Now, where you want to put this line, I don't know, but it's somewhere around Germany and most of France. Um, and there's two narratives, really. So in the English-speaking press or Northern European press, um, perhaps there is a sense that the Southern European countries brought it upon themselves, you know, tax evasion, avoidance, uh, governments that are corrupt or inefficient, and there is a little bit of the resurfacing of the stereotype of the lazy Southern European. In the South, they you know, very much feel that they've been had, that Germany has benefited from the euro and that now they're paying the price for something that perhaps was ill-conceived at the beginning. And I think um, certainly when I, you know, do my reporting around Europe, I try to perhaps try and bridge these two different narratives because I promise you sometimes you will read the headlines in Italy or Spain and then Germany, you know, or the UK, and it's almost like you're looking at two completely different stories. And you know, we can have a long discussion as to who's right. Uh, certainly the money are all in the hands of sort of the Northern European uh, uh, lot. But, uh, but I think personally, that's what I always try to keep in mind, that I don't know about European spirit. I mean, I suppose most of us would call ourselves European, but we will never have, never have had the sort of cohesive ideology that the US, for example, has. And that's, uh, that's one of the problems, I think, going forward. Nick, a small island off the coast of Europe. To, to what extent, when the BBC, when you talk about Europe, do you mean Britain as well, or, or, or do you mean a bunch of foreigners who live across the water? I mean Europe. I mean, simple, if I use the word Europe, I mean Europe. And that includes Britain. <laughs> I, it's I for have you to, to ask, because... My, it's for you as a viewer to question whether Britain's part of Europe, but... And if Europe is Europe, we are part of the European landmass, even though we're 20 miles away. Question from the lady in the middle. Alison Wheeler, uh, Alison W. Before I get to get the question, I would love to know what Americans think Scandinavia is, if it's part of Europe or not. Um, you're all 24-7 media. We're now very much used to a 24-7 media out world. Don't have to go back that many years, though, that news output was basically once or twice a day. It could be thought about a lot longer. It wasn't seat-of-the-pants stuff. Now you can be on air, online, within 10 minutes. Is there a case that there's less thought, less fact-checking going into things because you have that responsibility to get stuff out quickly? And does that vary by country? Can we start with Asun? Less fact-checking because you have more pressure to go on air quickly? Uh, this is a risk we, we, we avoid. 
it's uh, what's important is not in first but in right. So definitely not. So, same question to Kelly. I was going to say I'm happy to take the other side. Um, in a little bit of the sense that my own career has kind of I've seen this. You know, being at the Wall Street Journal for years, there the company is under pressure to become more and more focused on breaking news, you know, getting stuff out on the newswire. And while it's, you know, while the next mega merger is extremely important and moves share prices, you know, people used to be judged on the basis of how many leaders, that is long um, profile front page stories that they wrote. And they're not really anymore. They're judged on how many stories they're breaking. And, um, you know, what a breaking news story is is kind of open to interpretation. I mean, it can be a marginal development with, on a big corporate story, again, rumor of a deal. Um, so the kinds of the kind, the kind of time and um, effort that was put into stories in the past that would often give you a deeper sense of events so that you could then really do more analysis or draw your own opinions is not as economically and financially viable as it once was. Um, Maybe we'll have looked back on the 90s as a unique era in journalism, and maybe there are a lot of blogs and, and new writers filling that void. But I do think something has been lost, and just watching the trajectory myself and the extent to which Twitter um, I'm addicted to and you know, has become an important outlet but, but means that I may be sending 1,000 tweets instead of writing a 1,000-word article, I do think something's lost in that. Uh, time for one last question from the back. It's not really a question, just a remark, I guess, um, getting back to the um, Cyprus and um, Russia <laughs> dispute. Um, I'm, I'm Russian, actually, and I'm doing a master's here. Um, I think I must admit that uh, the news was uh, reported really with a lot of gloating, um, even, even the official media, but you, you should have uh, looked at, at, you could have looked at the uh, blogs and um, you know, social networks to see uh, how that was perceived at a very general level, meaning um, just what we call middle class, people who don't really tend to have accounts in Cyprus. So the direction was quite, um, you know, predictable. So serves them good. That was it. Um, and uh, now that the government has reported that they're not going to bail out anyone it's even clearer. And then um, the other point I wanted to say, uh, I wouldn't really overestimate the role of social media um, in, um, in the um, uh, political crisis that we had, or which started back in 2011, because whatever happened, um, it gave a lot of hope, but nothing really changed. It might have, social media helped to shift the um, power structures a little bit, but um, it, it, they, they, they haven't changed things radically, I'm afraid, because what happened is that there was this moment of uh, euphoria and people expecting a lot of, of things to, to, to change. But basically, the, uh, most of it was lost on people because those who were prepared to be mobilized politically, they were, and others were not. And those others were, I'm afraid, like 80% maybe of the people, those who are not on social media, who don't have blogs, who are maybe not in the central part of Russia. So... This, is, this might, simple, or might sound a bit simplistic, but I, I think it, it is actually um, the case. And over uh, the past couple of years or year and, and a half, um, everything that followed with the, with the authorities actually playing it more or less wisely, um, the trust that uh, Putin had lost or others, other leaders had lost, it, was, it still got back. Um, not to the to the to the um, to the initial level, but it kicked back uh, just because maybe the position lost trust. So there are a lot of shades of grey there, 
um, and it's yet to be seen how, how it develops. Thanks. The American comedian John Stewart is very critical of what he calls let's leave it there journalism. The idea is you have a bunch of people who all express different views and then you say, let's leave it there. Have a round of applause for my wonderful panel.